0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Talkin' Shop with Dylan McGlenn. I'm your host, Dylan McGlenn. We have another really awesome guest for you this week. So let's dive right in and talk some shop. My guest this week is Tim Sicardo. Tim was a staff writer on the television series Community and currently writes for American Dad. He's also written for shows like Trip Tank and Vice Principals.
1: Hey, man. Hey, how's it going? Nice to kind of sort of meet you.
0: <laughs> yeah, you too. Uh,
1: thanks for doing this. I appreciate
0: it. Oh, yeah, no problem, man. Uh, Nick Nick and Joel said they had, a, they had a good time. Awesome. That's great. That's great to hear. Uh, so I can just kind of get right into it. That's fine. It's just question. Yeah, sure. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm not like the most experienced podcast guest, so tell me whatever <laughs> I need to know or just roll with it, and I'll roll with it, too.
0: Uh, awesome. So I kind of want to start by asking, like, how you got into, into screenwriting and into comedy at first. Like, was there ever a moment where you realized that it was, like, the career you wanted to pursue? Um, I, th- I think it would be kind of like...
1: I didn't realize as a career until later, but it was just something I started doing. You know what I mean? Like, I think I was just always one of those kids like, you know, we didn't have a camcorder, but my dad's friend did and whenever we were borrowing it for the weekend or whatever, I was like making a naked gun ripoff or trying to do like movie stuff or, you know, like uh, I, I played with Legos and would build a city and try to have stuff going on with it. So I think I've always kind of like like making things and doing story stuff without realizing it really. And i would make funny videos in high school and if we had like a video project i'd get super into it but it was just like a thing like it was i didn't seem any different than me liking to play little league or whatever um and i remember like going to college like literally not just going but like being driven there by my mom and i had the big thick course catalog and i was like oh i need to like figure out (laughs) what i want to do um and i was just going through all the courses and the ones that seemed cool. I'm like, oh, there's a television production course. And there's this like film course, like just looking at things that seemed fun to me. Um, and I think that's when I started realizing like, oh, I guess people do this for like a job. I didn't know anyone doing that when I was growing up. Everyone just had like regular people jobs. Um, uh, and so I think once I started taking those classes, it's like, oh my, like, this is like, this could be a thing people do for a living, you know? Um, so I, I
0: guess that's, that's kind of the, the origin story. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so then, what did you major in uh, when you were in college? Well, I majored
1: in communications because um, I went to Boston College. Like again, like I did not go. Um, I didn't like choose the school that was best for me. I was like, well, just like I wanted to go to a college in Boston that was called Boston College. I went on a tour. The campus was amazing. Um, and, and in hindsight, like now knowing what I actually ended up doing, like that was the exact wrong place to go to. Like it's very like you know it's a great school. I met some some fun people, but like I was always kind of like one of the few people doing the shit I wanted to do there. And I would like you know drag my friends along and be like, hey, can you sit in that chair and say this these words while I record you? And I'm gonna put you in a video project. But there wasn't it wasn't like that kind of like everyone's trying to do it kind of thing. Like I I. I feel like a lot of people out here in Los Angeles. I met a lot of people who went to Emerson, and like just speaking of like colleges in Boston, like that was like people were putting on plays all week, and people were like making their own movies and stuff. Um, but in a way, it was good because I, being one of the only people who was interested in that stuff meant that like it was maybe a little easier to like get equipment or whatever. Like whenever I wanted to to take a camera out from the camera rental place or the library or whatever, like there wasn't too many people trying to do it. Um, but that also meant that like being a communications major was like, it was me and like two other guys who liked doing what I was doing, and then like the football team and the basketball team, because that was like the easy major. Um, and, and back you know, before you could edit a, a, a movie on your phone, like when, when Avid systems were new, there were literally two on campus. And one was for every single communications or film major, and the other was for the football team to cut promos. So like that was, <laughs> but I, but I, you know, I worked my way through all that and and, and, and did learn some stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, that's hilarious. So how did you end up like uh, breaking into the industry? Like what was your first like big break, so to speak?
1: Well, my, you know, again, being like surrounded by people who had no idea how this industry worked, um, that was always just like, well, you could like work at the local TV station. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, that's the closest thing to me. Uh, I grew up in Rhode Island, by the way, I should say. Um, not exactly, you know, Hollywood East or anything. And, uh, and the other thing was like internships, like they're like, oh, well, like a lot of these places were like, let you work there for a summer. And that actually was a thing like that did translate into the way the entertainment industry at least worked at that time. I think there's been kind of a, a reforming of the way internships work. So I was my, I got two like, after my freshman year of college, I was like, I want to do this stuff nobody here does any of it. I'm not learning, you know, it's cool that I can like go to a class and have somebody who makes like local commercials in Boston tell me how, uh, how like uh, his video unit works when they go to, to shoot stuff at the car, at the car lot. But like there was nobody doing entertainment stuff. There was no one doing kind of professional level stuff. So internships were my first like jump into that. So I was an intern at the local NBC affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island. And I was like, you know, writing promos for like the, 'Cause they just they, I guess they just let you do that. Apparently the promos aren't very important to them or they just need someone who's like somewhat okay to write those things. So I was like writing like, you know, the guy the guys who would do the news when I was kids. It, it would be like I'd have them be like, Yeehaw, come on down to the Country West Fest, like whatever like local thing we were trying to promote for the station or whatever. So that gave me that gave me like a little idea of like, oh, these people have like they work in TV, they have like careers, they go in, this guy's an editor, this person's a camera person. And it was fun to just see how things were physically made, but the only things we made there were the news, um, sports, which was like part of the news basically, and then promos for the station itself. So there wasn't like, you weren't making shows. And I I wasn't stupid. I didn't think they were making like Friends in Rhode Island, but I think that's when it became very clear to me that like, oh, the kinds of like entertainment-based shows I wanna do are not here. They're in Los Angeles and to some extent, New York. So like, I think, one summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I worked at the NBC affiliate in Providence. And then I think during my sophomore year or something, I worked at the NBC affiliate in Boston, but I was basically working with news people and stuff. So I kind of like, I was learning a little bit about stuff, but not exactly the kind of creative stuff I wanted to do. Um, And so that's when I started being like, well, if these people have internships, maybe like the kind of shows I want to work on, have internships. And New York just felt like, so much more tangible, even though it felt a billion miles away, it was not, it was, you know, four hour drive away. Um, so I started looking, okay, what shows are in New York? Like I had no concept of like, you know, I've you know live from New York at Saturday night, I knew that one was in New York. Uh, Letterman talked about New York a bunch, so I figured that was there. <laughs> um, but you looked, I looked around and and, and the time, what was there comedy wise was mostly, it was SNL, Letterman, Conan, and I think that might've been it. Like occasionally a sitcom would pop up or something, but I didn't really know much about it. So I, I was like, you know, constantly like looking around for like phone numbers. Cause like you, there were no websites that had this kind of information at this point. There was like rudimentary websites, but not like contact us for internships. So I was just calling places and being like, do you guys have interns, etc., etc. And the thing that actually ended up working for me is I, was watching uh, late night with Conan was like my absolute favorite thing. Like like Letterman was awesome, but it was also like my older cousins liked Letterman. They they turned me on to it. Conan was the one that I was like, I saw this, and the next day I'm just like, why are you not watching this? You need to watch this show. It's all this crazy shit going on. It's smart and dumb at the same time. Um, and I, I I watched the credits roll by, and I saw the name of the head writer, and I found I, I found the the address to just NBC New York in general. And I wrote like, you know, to this guy's name, his name is Jonathan Groff, uh, care of late night Conan O'Brien, with Conan O'Brien, NBC, New York. And I put this number and just figured it would never get to him. And, you know, however many months later, like I got a response from him. And it was, it, the whole question was just mostly just like, hey, I want to write comedy. How do you do this? Like, uh, and, and he, you know, he brought back some kind of, some nice things and then and, and said hey here's the phone number for the guy we have interns in our show like if you'd want to come work here and see how we do the show so i you know I, that that was amazing to me i couldn't believe it i called that number i was probably like shaking and uh they they you know gave me told me how to apply which i don't remember i'm sure it was by sending a physical piece of paper to a physical mailbox at the time And uh, I got an interview, which was nuts. And uh, I remember, yes, long story short, I ended up interning at, at Late Night with Conan between my junior and senior year of college. And it was just, it was amazing. It really was like, you know, I was still doing like, I was like buying people dinner and like stocking the fridge with soda, but just like, instead of making the local news down the hall, they were making like my favorite thing ever. And you know, I would we we would all watch the tapings at like four o'clock, and I would I mean I, I would be crazy be like I'm like I'm seeing this before I would have if I didn't work here. And then I would go. I was like, saying the summer I got some some like a bunch of weird stockbrokers. Some like friend of my dad's knew had like a tiny closet room that they rented to me for too much money, and I would go home and I would watch the same show that we had in the afternoon. I was like, I can't believe it. Like I would just notice the edits in it or whatever. So so that was the first I'm like, yes, this is it. Um, and then through that, I knew that just being around I knew the NBC had a page program, which was kind of like if these internships were like this unpaid for student credit, temporary thing, the page program was like an actual thing. I think they gave you like 10 bucks an hour, which was nothing in New York, but it was something to like Instead of nothing, which I was getting at at late night with Conan. So I I was applying for that and trying to get into it. And and after I graduated from college, I I managed to get into the NBC page program. It's a year long program where you like, like the baseline is everyone's giving tours of 30 rock. It's easier to explain this now that 30 rock the show exists and you're I'm like, yes, I was Kenneth, but, but like not funny and in real life. Um, You would give tours to people, but like from that pool of people you are always applying within the programs for other jobs like people who were super into news were like applying for like the 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 page position on like the nbc nightly news or dateline or something and i was applying for snl and conan which i I never got but like i was being put into just like i remember i had one page job where i was like working for the scheduling department like if a cameraman called out sick for the today show at like 11 at night i would be the guy who scheduled his replacement or whatever but you're around this building. So, like, I would go in and, and, like, watch SNL rehearsal, or it would be on, like, channel three on the in-house feed. So, it was still, it was really cool you were around all that stuff, even though I never worked on those shows directly. I worked on Today Show and, and some stuff like that. Um, And then from there, because the page program is only a year, like, it kind of, like, it has this expiration date on it. So, you know it's going to be done at a certain time. So, you're always kind of planning your next move, whether it's, to get a better assignment within the program or to have a job waiting for you when they say, Hey, your year's up. So I got a PA job. That was another thing where I was just like literally calling around phone numbers, just like, yeah. I like think I called law and orders production office and I was like, do you guys have any PA jobs? Cause there, again, there was barely any comedy in the city at that point. And I just wanted like any television job and some just like, you didn't have to do this. I don't know why he did. He was a super nice guy. He goes, you know, we don't need anybody. Um, but they're starting a new show called Deadline, Dick Wolf's company, and they might need you. So I forget the steps that I ended up getting that job. I was a PA on a one-hour drama in the Dick Wolf universe. And that was kind of my entry into like working in the TV production.
0: That's really cool. Uh, I'm a big SVU fan, so that's awesome.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, My my. At one point, because I kind of moved up the ladder there. I moved up to, I was like a writer's assistant, script coordinator type job. And that same job opened up on SVU. And I, another good friend of mine from the PAGE program who was doing random PA jobs around the city. And I put him up for that and he and he went in and he got the job himself. And, and he, so at one point I knew the script coordinator S- SVU while I was the script coordinator for Criminal Intent. Like I was, I was there for, I was there when Criminal Intent started. I was there for like the first three years maybe. That's awesome. And, yeah it wasn't it was yeah but it was like one of those like you get super comfortable because like these job these tv jobs are like so nomadic like you this show gets canceled you gotta go to another job and the what was interesting about law and order is because these shows were so successful and they kept getting coming back like you would see like oh this person's been in law and order for 14 years this person's been svu for 11 years which is like the dream unless you're a young comedy writer because like i like I was like getting promotions and getting a little more money, which was nice because I could like live a little bit more, like I could eat three meals a day in New York instead of two. Um, but I felt myself getting super comfortable and they would always be like, oh, are you gonna try to write an episode of like Law and Order or Criminal Intent? And I was like, no man, like that's hard. Like writing is hard, especially when it's a thing you don't care about. Like I didn't give a fuck about Law and Order and I wasn't trying to write that. And that's kind of when I realized, I'm like, I can either stay here and kind of keep getting these promotions and like, be like, yeah, you know, I used to be, I used to want to be a comedy writer, but now I'm like an associate co-producer of whatever, whatever at Law and Order, because it was comfortable. Um, so before I, before you know, while I was still young enough, I that's when me and my friend, who was the script coordinator at SVU, both quit our jobs and, and moved out to LA for more like comedy opportunities.
0: Yeah. And then I know from there, obviously you ended up as a writer on a community for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that obviously that show had like really unique following in terms of like the fan base had like one of the the cult following, as they say. Uh, How'd you kind of end up uh, on that show?
1: Well, so I, I came out to LA with like writer's assistant experience, but in the drama world and immediately like Nobody on a comedy wanted to hire me. No one who the hell knew who I was. Like, it's very like, it's like any industry, like people have a million friends who want some job. So like when someone from the middle of nowhere tries to get it, it's harder. So I actually like, I think I managed to, uh, I'll, I'll cut out a boring story and just say, I managed to get a, a, a PA job on a sitcom pilot. So I kind of took a step back and was back to getting coffee and driving scripts around when you used to have to do that. And uh, so I was on these two Comedy shows, these pilots, and they didn't make it to a show, but at least I had that on like my resume now. And um, one of the things I was telling you about, I wrote that letter to Jonathan Groff at Late Night with Conan forever ago. When I was actually doing that internship, um, first of all, all the writers were incredibly generous and great. And and one of them, this guy Greg Cohen, actually is a writer on American Dad now. So like you. I used to like get his dinner, and now we work in rooms together. And he's putting jokes in my episodes, and it's wild to even think about sometimes. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there when I, I got all excited about. <laughs> no, you're fine. Oh, so I, was talk- I was talking about um, Jonathan Groff. So, so he, you know, you're there late one night, like cleaning up styrofoam trays, and I kind of like saw he was in his office, and I was like, okay, this is my like, I'll I'll give myself this one time to bother him, and I was like, hey. I want to do what you do. You see what I'm doing right now. It's awesome that I'm around here and I appreciate you telling me, but like, you know, how do I get from here to there? And and he gave me this advice that I pass on to everyone else. He's just like, well, you know, you, it's great that you work here and I, you know, we know who you are now. That's awesome. And like, you know, we know the receptionist and we know the graphics coordinator, we know all these people. So you have like these, you know, opportunities, perhaps like if we had a writing job, you'd know about it, but like, I'm not going to say you're such a good receptionist that we will make you the new writer you're such a good, like, just because we know you. So he's like, there's kind of two paths. There's like the opportunity path and the, and the talent path or the chops path. And he's like, so like you're doing good, like, you know, working, being an NBC page, I guess, which I told him I wanted to do after I graduated. Like that'll keep you get maybe being in the loop and knowing people and getting opportunities. But like, you need to be good at comedy before you get hired at this thing. So that was, that summer I had nothing to do because I didn't know anybody in New York. And I had found that like a lot of the Conan writers on weekends would go do improv at UCB and I would go down there. And that's when I saw my first time I even heard of these guys before they had the comedy central show. And I would watch like all these long form improv. It was their ASCAT show. And it was amazing. It was so cool. And I was like, Oh, okay. He's like, yeah, you need to, he's like, do stuff like that. Like go out and do comedy. Like, find your group of people that are your age and also doing stuff. He's like, when I was in Boston, I came up with all these stand-ups. He was a stand-up in Boston. I knew David Cross and this and that. And like, as my group of people kind of became more and more seasoned and started getting work, we, of course, you're, they're going to say, "Who do you, who do you like to write on your show? I'm like, oh, I know these three people, like we used to like, work together when there was no money and we'd still stay up to 4am and I trust them with my, you know, I trust them creatively and all that stuff. So I I would, I was trying to kind of like have those two paths going on. So while I was out here being a PA for, for sitcom pilots that didn't get picked up, I was doing improv at night. I was, I was doing improv Olympic, which was the thing that was out here. They kind of invented um, long form improv in Chicago and they had LA, LA outpost and they were the closest thing to UCB in Los Angeles. And then UCB decided we're in Los Angeles too. And they opened up a theater literally at the bottom of my street. I could walk there in five minutes. So it was like, all right, well, this is what I'm doing every day now. So I, would, I was either going to shows or I was doing shows and like writing sketch shows and learning improv and doing all this stuff and kind of like getting better at that level of thing. And, you know, at one point I I was running this show or co-directing it at the time, it's called Sketch Cram. And it was, we we basically like, on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m., we got eight writers and just started writing all day. And then at 4 p.m., we had eight actors come in. We did a read-through. We picked what's go, And then basically the show went up at midnight. We made a show in 12 hours or whatever. And sometimes we'd send out a video crew. And that was, like, a lot of fun. And it was also, like, since we had a different rotating cast of people, you'd meet different people every week. And one of those weeks, um, we had a writer who was somebody's friend. I didn't know her. And... Um, we got along well throughout the day and i had told her like oh yeah you know i'm working tv production i'm trying to like you know i'm right i'm trying to get a writer's assistant job on a on a sitcom if i can and whatever and that that writer was Megan Gans and she like a week and a half later was like hey i just met you but i just started work on uh, a show called community and we need a writer's assistant. I forget somebody left or whatever. We need a new writer's assistant. And I remember you saying that you had that job or you had that kind of experience. So that was the weird thing. It was like this kind of convergence of like, because I had the writer's assistant experience from the jobs I did in law and order and these sitcom pilots, and then was working in the comedy world and someone thought I, you know, had the right sensibility, those two things kind of combined. So I got the interview over there and, somehow tricked them into hiring me and came on community season two as a, as a writer's assistant. And, um, you know, my wife and I had watched the first season and we really liked it. We thought it was awesome. So like, it was like, I remember like when they called me and told me I got the job, I screamed like, ah, yeah, I was like very excited. Um, So it was cool just to show up and like, not just be on, I I would have taken that job on any show. Like the shit I was applying for was, it did not have to be a good show at all. So like to, to, to luckily be on a show that I really liked and really respected, that meant that like, I was just watching the people make it, which was amazing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I know when it came to uh, writing episodes for that show, I've heard about like Dan Harmon's uh, like the story circles idea. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that because like from what I understand it's not really similar to like the way any other show operates.
1: Well I'll tell you what's interesting and I was just like we you know we all work on Zoom now like before I came on here I was on American Dad Zoom and we're breaking a story and we got into this conversation about because someone brought up the Dan's story circle or whatever and someone brought up some other thing you know because Dan's circle is based on Joseph Campbell's You know, hero's journey and monomyth, that kind of stuff. And we were kind of talking about how a lot of these things are just kind of different vocabulary for describing the same thing. Like, like Joseph Campbell would say, like as you cross the threshold into what you know, TV writers or dr- drama writers would call Act Two, because you're going to the belly of the whale. Whereas, like the Save the Cat guy, I think calls that section "fun and games," and some people call that section the promise of the premise. And I've seen someone call it the movie poster. You know, if it's a movie about a a shark that boxes a whale, like they're probably gonna start boxing in Act Two. But like it's all just different ways about talking about the same thing. Um, And I didn't have any experience writing on any other shows so I just knew this and I think one way it was helpful was because everyone was using the way Dan talked about stories it gave us all a shared vocabulary so like when everyone was talking about these like oh it's the magic flight and it's this and that like it just meant we were all using the same words to talk about the same part of the story so that was pretty helpful and then you know also just I think I think he pays much more so much more attention to that kind of like a clean story arc than maybe a lot of shows do. It's not to say that some is better and some is worse. It's just the way it was that like that's how my brain formed. Like the way Dan Harmon writes Story and, and and Chris McKenna was also a big force on that show, eventually running it. Like the way Dan and Chris thought about Story was the way I learned to think about Story because I was organizing notes for them or eventually when I was getting my chance to write episodes or got put on the staff myself, I was, we were all just talking in that way. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of like, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but that was my, my writing college for real. You know, I guess the communications major at Boston college didn't teach me nearly as much as like two weeks in that room did.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Uh, and then I know you mentioned uh, Chris McKenna and obviously him and uh, his brother used to write for American Dad, which you write for now. Yeah. Uh, how did you end up there? Well, there's, because
1: of Chris, there was kind of always like a little relationship between those shows because I forget if, if he went anywhere else before or if he went directly from American Dad to Community. But, um, you know, the, uh, we would hear, he, we would know some of the same people because maybe we would be out, after work, and Chris would bring some American Dad people along. Or I remember in season three, we needed a few writers, and Chris brought in on the, the writing team from American Dad. And so there was some back and forth, and like I think some of the stuff they did at American Dad became like a little standardized at Community because Dan had never written on anyone else's staff before. He's he's he would written movies, he created things on his own, but there were some similarities between just the way things functioned. Workflow-wise, a community, an American Dad that I feel like I never talked to him about it, but I feel like Chris was involved in doing that. Like, American Dad um, always gave like an episode to a writer's assistant. Like, you, you, there's a few episodes a year that you're supposed to give out to freelance writers, like people who aren't on the permanent staff, and um, a lot. American Dad was like very consistent about like giving the writers assistance opportunities to write those and community did that too. That's how I got my first episode. I was a writer's assistant. And kind of after I'd been around long enough and proven myself, I, I got an opportunity to write that, which is like, you know, the biggest opportunity of your, your career when you're a writer's assistant. And also things like um, that doing joke rooms, like uh, American dad, I, I won't even try to go into the story of why, because I wasn't there. They called the joke room, the cougar room. And so like we have one room who's rewriting a story. Let's say we just had a table read on an episode and, you know, most of the notes have to do with just like, well, this character should do this here or this part of the story doesn't make sense. So there's usually one story room that is like fixing that part of the script, like the, and that's usually led by the showrunner, you know, is Dan. And then a lot of times there's just kind of like these one little areas like, like, Oh, that joke, we could probably beat that joke. Or, you know, that little stretch here, this all makes sense for the story, but there's no, it's not funny. So like you would kind of mark those areas. And so that like the story room doesn't get bogged down on trying to think of the, of the joke. They can just work on the story. You would, you would have a room spin off and do those jokes and American dad, that was called the Cougar room. And um, I didn't quite realize this until I started working on American dad, but like, Oh, we do this the exact way they do this at American dad. Like you, you, this room writes 15 jokes for each area. You walk into the main story room and you like, pitch them you present them like you say them out loud um and that that's basically what we did at American Dad so there was some stuff like that going back and forth and then in season five when Chris was running the show with Dan um they brought in a writing team um Jordan Bloom and Parker Day from American Dad and uh, I worked with them for a season we had a good time and it was a lot of fun and you know we kind of you know we, you go through a tv season together it's like going through the trenches. Like, you know, these people like you're, you have a weird bond forever. And um, when, when Amira, let's see, try to get the chronology right here. Community we thought was canceled after season five. And I had an opportunity to go right on um, a HBO show called Vice Principles, which was done by the guys who made Eastbound and Down, which was like a show I loved. And I was like, well, community not coming back. Community was like amazing and I loved it and I wanted to be there forever, but it you can't be there if it doesn't exist. So I took the vice principal's job, and that's when it turned out community did come back. Like Yahoo saved the day and gave them one more season. Um, so that's what was happening at community while I was working on basically a year at vice principals. And then around the time I knew vice principals, I knew I, th- I think I knew I had a month left or whatever, and it was around the holidays, and I got a text or something from, from Jordan he was like, hey, we a writer left mid season here and we need someone to come in. Would you be available? Like not that he had the power to hire me, but he was like, heads up, there's a job here. If you're interested, we think you'd be a good fit or whatever. And I went in and I interviewed and turned out I was a good fit or at least I made them think I was, and then started working at American Dad. So long story short, I someone who I work with on community knew of the American Dad job and it's been God, five almost six years now
0: yeah yeah that's crazy to think about uh yeah for me it's it's crazy to think how long the show has just been on at this point like with the new started last week too and everything
1: it's pretty wild to especially to jump on when i was jumping onto that show we were like halfway through production of the 200th episode um The writers had already written it. they had the table read, which I wasn't there, but I was there for when like the animation started coming in, and we would like do an, a rewrite on like the partially animated stuff so and then I was there for like and then we just had our three hundredth, so I've been there for a like hundred episodes, which is insane like that's but then even what's even more insane is you are like, oh, that's only a third of the
0: show <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, it's crazy. I remember. When the show was on Netflix, I used to get to, I think, season nine, whatever one starts with uh, Steven Snot, like, cloning dates for the prom. I I vividly remember seeing those episodes and being like, oh, they put a new season up. And that was, like, eight years ago now. But to me, that still feels like it's new.
1: When I started, I I asked what season it was, and no one really knew. (laughs) Because there's a weird thing where, like, when they switched from Fox to TBS, like – there was one thing where they produced it at one season, but like three episodes airs on Fox and the rest of them aired on TBS. So like some people or maybe Wikipedia or IMDB or whatever was considering those two different seasons. But if you work there, it was really just one production cycle. We were since we've become on the same page now, but like for a while, I was just like, man, these people make so many episodes. They don't even know what season it is. Like that's
0: crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I know you mentioned when you joined American Dad, like you, you knew people that had worked on the show like obviously chris and and then uh jordan bloom and parker day uh by the way jordan bloom's new show uh, the modoc show with pat and oswald looks awesome
1: yeah yeah Great man you, you've been seeing little sneak peeks
0: of artwork and stuff yeah. for
1: like two years at this point
0: <laughs> yeah uh but anyways so when you joined american dad like how familiar were you with the show like had you watched it at all before very very unfamiliar um
1: I, I remember watching it like like it premiered after the Super Bowl or something, because like, you know, I watched that early incarnation of Family Guy. That was like, that hit me at the right time. Like my friends and I, I think I was like at my senior year in college, we we're just like, oh shit, Kool-Aid man, that's fun. Like, yeah, you know, we, were, we were super in this. So I remember being like psyched that this was coming out. And just like, for whatever reason, like it, it was never a show I stuck around with. Like I would see an episode here and there, I knew who the characters were, but like I was not too familiar with it. So like, I remember, I definitely like, before I went in to meet on that show, I had to watch a bunch of episodes. And like one of my managers is a huge fan. He was like, you know, you got to watch this one. You got to watch that one. Um, so like I, and then when I started the show, I'm like, okay, I need to start watching more of these. Like, I, I, I can't say that I've watched every one. I, <laughs> my friend, Zach, who works on the show, like made a point. He's like, I will watch every one. And he was just like, for like a year and a half he was like all right I'm on episode 70. Uh, I I can't say that I've seen every one but I've seen a bunch of them especially the more recent ones and you know and then a hundred of them made while I've been involved. I feel like I know at
0: least my era of the show very well. Yeah (laughs) that's funny like I always think that's kind of funny to hear like people who join and they're not like familiar with the show I I guess for me because I just watch it like over and over again basically. Yeah. I've seen every episode like I don't even know. I don't even want to have, like, too many, too many times. It's embarrassing. It's yeah. Back but, of. <laughs> uh, but I do have a couple, like, sp- uh, questions about kind of how the episodes get written. Um, one that actually, I just came to mind, like, a few minutes before we started was, like, A plots versus B plots. So, obviously, like, every episode has both. But when it comes to developing, like, B plots, are they normally written for a specific episode? Like, to tag along in, in any yeah. They, they
1: are, um, the way we generally on this show, cause every show is different. Um, you know, like they have different philosophies on, or on how many stories and some shows do three smaller stories. Um, American dad, it's, it's kind of like all about the a story during the breaking at the beginning, at least. And you figure out kind of who you want on that story, who you need to make it work well, what's the funniest version of that. And meanwhile, you're kind of just like, all right, and this is, this, this is a thing that's kind of a very TV show when you have a regular cast, it's like, who's left over. You know what I mean? Like, and and so let's come up with a fun story for them or, Oh, I've always had this B story idea and we have Stan and um, Steve kind of aren't really heavy in the main plot. Like maybe we can do this thing with them. So the the beast, I I don't want to say the B story is an afterthought because I don't want to make it seem like that's, it's that unimportant, but the, The the heavy lifting is for the A story. And then you know the B story is only going to be like four, maybe five scenes max anyway. So you kind of like you put that in near closer to the end. And sometimes once you've had the A story worked out so well, you're like, oh, this is where the B story might be able to kind of intersect with it. Or maybe they start in the same place and diverge. Or maybe they start in completely different places and eventually get together. Like I did one A couple years ago, I think it might have aired last year, um, where like Haley becomes a fish too, like uh, like for class. And um, we had that. And the B story was about like like I think it was Jeff Kaufman came up with the idea. He was just like I I bought a coconut once and it was impossible to open. Like okay, that that's the level of story we want in our B story. Like just a big silly thing to do. And um, the stories were not meant to be connected at all. We just kind of knew that like Chris Angel was gonna be the one who finally could open the coconut. And um, my friend, Nicole, who's on staff, I remember at one point she was just kind of like thinking, and you're like, what are you, what are you thinking about over there? And she's just like, I want Haley and Klaus to be in the coconut. I'm like, I'm like I don't know what that means, but that's super funny. And we, the room worked it out. And that, so that was all of a sudden the B story and the A story connected at the end, but that was never part of like, you know, the two weeks of talks we had before. It was just because we we're putting the B story on at the end.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that episode because that was like the specific episode that brought that question to mind. Oh, wow. Huh. Because every time I see them like come out of the coconut at the end, I mean, yeah, geez, I've already seen that episode like probably 10 times now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but every time I see them come out at the end, I always wondered, like, did they plan that the whole time? Because then there'll be like a B plot that, you know, doesn't really connect with the main plot at all. So I always wondered yeah. that. Well,
1: uh, when, you, when you interviewed Nicole Shabtaith and told her, tell her um, thank her for, <laughs> because yeah, that that was the that, that, again like so things like that happen a lot or or sometimes it was just like all right we this a story requires that like that like Roger and Francine are the only two people in the house so we need to figure out a B story that gets everyone out of out of town or whatever so like a lot of times you're kind of like using your B story to help your A story and for American Dad the B stories are kind of like they're not as necessarily like following a big Story arc, like I consider them coming from a sketch background. Like the best ones are like sketches, where you're just like, here's a funny thing. We're gonna heighten it to absurd places a few times, and then try to get to the funniest place and take a bow, and we're done for the B story. Uh, but some shows are like, like uh, are very. Like, I remember I, I was developing something for Fox, and they were very adamant that the B stories of this show should be full stories where people are, like, growing as characters or whatever. So, you know, every show kind of had its own thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I had another question, too, kind of about, uh, like, the continuity and, like, the callbacks. Because it seems like, for me, at least, it might just be me, but I feel like in recent episodes, like, the past couple years, there's been... A lot more of those like the past episodes like uh klaus with his sidewinder xtr poster that he always tries yeah. to keep up uh even from last monday uh monday's episode with uh boys 12 and i think it was uh b11 trying to kill them mm-hmm. all um there's been like callbacks to roger's like old personas uh so i wanted to ask like is that been a, a conscious effort from you guys to like throw in little bits from other episodes? I wouldn't say
1: that it was like, no one sat down and said,
0: this is what, this is the goal.
1: If I were to try to just like, my theory would be, which I'm like pulling out of my ass as you hear each new word, um, is that like this current group of people, like, you know, we've lost a few, gained a few along the way. This core group of people have been around the show for like five, six, seven years now and we're all very familiar with things. And we always, like, you have like these inside jokes and you like all have your favorite little bits that you can't believe got on or that you're excited about. And another thing was like, we're very big into like world building. Like we were like, oh, we wish we had like more characters that we came back to. Like, I think the early show seemed to kill off a lot of their guest characters, like at the end of the episode, like for a joke or whatever. so for whatever reason, I think it's just because we're all we all have like a similar level of familiarity with the same stretch of time in the show, because all these callbacks are probably from the time that we wrote on the show, that it just kind of starts coming up. So it's just like, well, you know, if we're gonna be in Klaus's if we're gonna be in Klaus's alcove and he's going to be decorating it, well, he might as well be decorating it with this thing that we already know is his prized possession, the sidewinder, garbage truck poster. And you know, like if 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 Haley's friend is gonna be on this date with her, um, with a new smart boyfriend, well, it might as well be Danuta. Like we have Danuta; she's in the world. But I think that that's kind of what we're doing. Even though I don't think anyone ever made a statement that we will start doing callbacks now or we'll bring back characters more.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know lots of people love Danuta. She seems to be like a uh, fan favorite. I think mainly because of the scene where Klaus tries to call it. Oh, of
1: course. That's, that's think, ridiculous. What? That's one of those ones, a lot of times, like, we have our favorite jokes and, like, maybe no one ever cares about them. Or, like, th- that was one where we loved it and it turned out a lot of other people liked it, too. It's like, oh, cool. Like, that's, I'm glad
0: everyone... <laughs> Do you have the money? <laughs> like it? It's so fun. Yeah, so good. Uh, yeah, and then kind of speaking of... Uh, obviously, you know she, uh, Denuda seems to be like a fan favorite. But speaking of like the fan opinion at all, is that something that you guys like ever keep tabs on or, or try to look Can out? We look for? into stuff here and
1: there because, like, honestly, like. It's just funny that some people care about what we do all day to us like you know like i I, I get it i'm a, I'm a fan of shows too and i and I get into it, but there's something that's like, oh man, like they're talking about um, Tuttle or whatever um I, I wouldn't say it steers us in any way or that we're playing towards that, but like we we do look every once in a while or someone will say like, oh hey man, like they're like there's your bit from your episodes like a, a gif now or whatever, you know like we definitely check in. It's fun, but I, I don't think we're, we, we don't spend too much time there, which is probably for the best. Like you can't, you know, you, 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 then you probably get stuck in like some sort of fan service loop.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and there was, there was one specific episode uh, that you wrote that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, yeah. and it was uh, fantasy baseball. Uh-huh. I'm a big, huge baseball fan. Um, I mean, I got the poster there and I see you have the yeah. Red Sox poster too. Uh, So I kind of wanted to ask about, like, the inspiration for that. Because it was really, I felt like it was a really new way to kind of attack the Stan and Steve dynamic. Sure. Um, Well, let's see.
1: First of all, I'll just say the way that American Dad is run, and I can only speak to the time that I've been on it, uh, Brian Boyle and and Matt Weitzman are our showrunners. They're very good about, like, letting you bring your ideas to this and it might just be because there has been 300 and they're like, like any idea any new idea is a good idea or it might just be a philosophy they had i never asked them like you get to make episodes about things that you want to make episodes about like um i never felt like i was being deprived on other shows but like a lot of times on community it would just be like we've been working on this episode 12 it's going to be this um tim you're writing it which was like at the time i said awesome i can't believe it this is great um, but with American Dad, is a lot of times you come in, and sometimes the, the the sometimes you come in with like not much, and the room kind of gives you an idea, or sometimes you come in with a world. But a lot of times you get to just kind of, I feel like living in this world. I feel like doing a thing. Or here's a world. I, I know a lot about baseball. Let me use all my useless baseball knowledge for a thing, uh, for an episode. And that was that one. So like all the episodes of American Dad, like I get to do all the things I like. Like I we, I just did, I'm a big skier. We just were halfway through an episode about skiing. I am a huge fish fan. The episode of mine that comes out in a couple of weeks is is a, based on that world. Um, I, I, I believe in um, organized labor and I did an episode about striking or whatever. So that's where that started. I was like, oh, I want to do a baseball episode. It'll be fun to just like, Animate that world and, a lot, and stuff like that, like baseball and skiing and like kind of big world stuff. Like when you're on a live action show, that's like, yeah, we're not gonna spend a billion dollars to bring the camera crew to the mountains to snow, or like we, we don't have the money or time to rent out a baseball stadium, but for animation you can. So I, I forget where it came from exactly. I think. I figured because Stan is so you know America, American apple pie kind of guy and baseball is the national pastime, he would have this respect for it and like it. And there's a general idea, which is true unfortunately, that like younger generations care less and less about it because there's just more options and it's kind of like you know like your dad's thing or whatever maybe. Um, so like that might be a good thing where like Steve kind of like somehow gets involved. I forget why I came up with that He was a really good umpire. I don't know, but what I'll tell you is that the, the 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 Dungeon Dragons layer didn't come on it until halfway through the break, and I think it was Jordan Bloom, who who, uh, who came up with it. He's like, oh, what if the reason Steve is a good you know umpire or whatever is because of the way he does things for dungeons and dragons like he's like a showman or whatever so i was kind of always picturing like oh yeah the like, naked gun leslie nielsen kind of like show off umpire and he grounded it in that character which was the which probably helped the most it was, it was like okay steve, of course everyone believes that steve would be so into dungeons and dragons that maybe he's the envy of all his friends and can like he's the best dm um so so that, that that's what kind of made that one go in that direction, which, which gave us, we wouldn't have had that third act if we didn't have the Dungeons and Dragons thing where he basically like turns baseball into an insane Dungeons and Dragons world of, of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that episode. Uh, and I'm really glad you mentioned fish because I did want to talk about them too, because I'm also a big fish fan. Oh. Uh, and so like right when where, I saw-
1: Where are you again right now or where did you grow up?
0: Uh, I grew up in Saratoga. I, okay. Like right, I actually live right like off Route Fifty where Spac is. Uh, but yeah. right now I'm in Oswego for college. It's like north of Oswego. another fish uh, famous. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Well, no.
1: I I asked just because like when yeah. I grew up, it was they, they were they were they were leaving the Northeast, but like I still feel like it's more normal to know and like fish if you live the closer you are to New England.
0: Yeah yeah that's funny i always get that vibe too it's kind of funny because like them and, and the dead are like the big bands and the dead are you know california mm-hmm. and then fish is like east coast vermont like on the farm and stuff um, yeah but they were just like the
1: for me it was just like that's just like what people played in, in high school like it wasn't like hey like listen to this crazy music like it's all part of this whole scene it was just like yeah that was being played at the same time i had like the pearl jam album and the fish album and like the chronic or whatever like it was all just the same where i grew up
0: that's awesome uh
1: so what was your first uh show my first show was um new year's run 95 1995 wow and yeah right that were you alive (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) yeah yeah they showed that uh they streamed that one this past new year's though they did not stream the one I was at. I, I, I was at um, the 28th, so it was the, oh, you know, yeah. do the four-night run. I was at the first of the four-night run, and that was, all, <laughs> that was back at a time when, like, A, I did not get the content going to multiple shows um, and did not have the money to do that if I wanted to. Um, so, like, I remember I went to whatever the place you bought tickets was at the time, and I was like, oh, which one of these will I go to? And I think I could make it on the 28th. It never occurred to me to go to both. And now I'm just like, why don't you go to all of them? Um, but that was also where I was just, like, listening to albums and listening to songs. And I remember I would go to shows, and I'd want to hear as many songs as possible. I didn't quite know the, the improvisational aspect of it yet because everything I had was like, oh, it was a mixtape that somebody made of songs off albums, or, like, I have this album or that album. I didn't, like... I didn't have people passing tapes around or whatever, and a live one had maybe just come out or something. Um, so yes, yeah, so that was my first single, single show.
0: That's awesome. Uh, I know for a lot of people, they have like particular shows and particular jams that they always go back to and like listen to over and over again. Um, I definitely have more than a few of them. Like, are, are there any shows or specific like jams like that for you? That oh watching? yeah, yeah.
1: The top, top, top of my list was, my, so my first show was that show. And then my next shows were the Clifford Ball, oh, wow. um, which was awesome because I got to hear like, you know, a huge chunk of the catalog. Um, and then after that, my next shows were the Great Went. Like this was like, like I said, like maybe they'd come through town, but I didn't have the money, or like I didn't really like. Oh, I just saw them last year, and, and that was before I kind of realized like, oh, you can go to a bunch of these, and it's a different experience every time. Um, so I went to to great went and the great went the gin, bath of gin is, that's my top one. Yeah. When I, I listen to that, like when I'm
0: running or something and get all excited. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, yeah, that's like an all timer. Yeah. It's, uh, what, what,
1: what's yours? I got to ask. Uh, or, uh some of yours.
0: my number one would probably be, uh, Reba from Halloween 94 in Glens Falls.
1: That was a tape I had. I can actually picture, I used to like, draw like probably while I was listening to music just like doodle on the tape and I, I like it was a Halloween show so I had like a black marker and an orange marker and I was like drawing them on it and like, yeah I listened
0: to that show a lot. Yeah.
1: The White Album show yeah?
0: Yeah. Yeah that was yeah the first Halloween show and I've always like had uh I guess I've always been more inclined to that show I guess because it's like a local one for me. Oh you know, yeah. Saratoga. Uh, and it's kind of funny to like read the details and stuff about it. I think the show started at 10. So the encore didn't end till like three in the morning. And it's just like, yeah, they um, would never let that happen at that arena now.
1: No, no. And I'm wondering if they even quite knew what they were getting into. No. So first of all, <laughs> it's a three set show, which is already super long. But then the yeah. White Album set was
0: like two hours plus just because of the length of the White Album itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's always the one I go back to. Uh, and yeah, the one Gin I've listened to probably a hundred times too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like watching the reaction channels. There's people who like on YouTube, they'll react to fish. (laughs) It's fun to like listen to a jam that I've already heard a hundred times and watch them react. Like, I'll just wait till you get to this part.
1: Oh, I should start doing that. Um, Although part part of me is just giving me PTSD because like I learned long ago, as many of us should, that you can't just sit somebody down and play a thing and like look at them until they're as
0: excited as you are. It just never ends up the right way. (laughs) Yeah, I took uh, my last show I've been to with New Year's... uh, the last New Year's show, 2019. Oh, nice. Uh, And that was my buddy's first show, and he knew, like, nothing about him. So we were at the hotel the night before, and I was, you know, I had my headphones on listening to the stream of the 30th show, and, you know, the tweezer was, like, 38 minutes or something. And I kept telling him, like, dude, they're still going. Like, it's been 35 minutes. And he's like, how are they playing the same song still? And I was like, oh, dude, he doesn't get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this stopped being a song a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But, yeah, it was, you know... I I knew Harris Whittles through UCB and just being around LA and he had that that podcast and it was always just like, it always hurt me because I was just like, man, you got, you got, you should, I mean, I I know, I know they're doing it for laughs. So he's doing a thing you kind of shouldn't do, but like, it's never going to work. You can't tell somebody this is great. And then play it. And like, it just doesn't work that way. Um, Like I, I just, it it hurts me so much. I know that struggle of like being excited about a a thing and trying to show people it. And uh. yeah uh but but yeah that's um that's been a part of my life for a very long time
0: (laughs) yeah and obviously i know you mentioned uh shakedown steve which Mm -hmm. yeah uh i mean it doesn't come out for i think i mean this is going to come out next monday so it'll be a week from then but uh is there anything you can tell us without spoiling it oh yeah
1: I'll, i'll definitely make sure not to spoil it but um it started the same kind of way as what I was saying before. I was just kind of like looking for a new world to play in, like a new thing. I think I'd always just had like a loose idea in the back of my head, like, for years, it's just like, oh, well, maybe this will be a sketch, or maybe this will be a short film. Just the idea of like making um, grilled cheese in the in the in the lot before the show. Because when I was a when I was younger, that was some of the like I was always you know the music was great, I loved it. That was I was listening to it a oh, songs over and over. But when I first started going to shows, some of the stuff that stuck out to me was just like, my God, this whole world. And, you know, I'm coming from suburban Rhode Island, and like everything's like semi-sheltered, let's say. But I'm just like, man, like that guy is like just, he's guys hair's insane and this woman's walking around with like a bong like in a parking lot and like people are selling weird stuff. Like it was just this whole crazy carnival. And I remember when I when I went to the great went I went with a good friend of mine who was not into the band but was just like up for a fun weekend and he was just blown away by the whole scene too. And I this might have been a line that was in there but i definitely got rid of it but he just looked at me he's just like he's like man this whole place like you could just decide you're going to pretend to be a cat all weekend and walk around on your all fours and meow and everyone would just be completely okay with it (laughs) like so i've always just been kind of like enamored with just the whole weird freedoms and the whole just you know and and, you know the more you learn you get older like all this kind of counterculture thing has been going on for a while and it did start with the grateful dead but, like, I've always just kind of had that idea of, like, the parking lot at a fish show selling grilled cheese. And so when I was cu- trying to come up with an idea, I don't think anybody I work with is a, is another, like, big fish fan. There's some people who are, like, semi, uh, like, they know some songs because, like, they had a few CDs in college or, like, maybe they've been to a show or two or, like, a, a boyfriend of theirs dragged them to a show that they hated or something like that so I'm kind of like this whole, it's all new to other people. So I'm just kind of pitching this world and people got like fascinated with the details. Like, I, I, I'm not going to say they, they fell in love with the music or whatever. They're like, Whoa, what's a Wook? I'm like, Oh, it's kind of like a feral hippie who like, like just completely like all their hair grew out and they just like, basically look like they live in a forest. Like they look like a wookie, like Chewbacca, like, Oh, that's funny. And like, so like all these weird terms and you kind of realize like, Oh, all these things you know that no one else knows them and they're kind of interesting. Like no one knows what a Custy is, no one knows what a Wook is, like the idea of of, of, of all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, oh, and, and they're very supportive. <laughs> and it, it's I, I thank people for this because I think that the people in that room who could give a fuck about vicious music would probably hate it. But they were enamored with this world. They recognized that I knew a lot about it and we built a story together going through that um so so basically like and then also like and this is a thing i i you know it's a general storytelling thing but for me as i learned in a community like it's where it sunk into me this idea of like you can do crazy fun shit but it doesn't quite land as well as when it's being at the center of that crazy fun shit is a character that has like clear emotional things going on. So you kind of know how they're feeling at every moment. It makes the jokes funnier. It makes the stories go places. And so the story we kind of figured out on this was, oh, okay, well obviously it's a fish thing. Maybe it's Jeff and Haley is the first thought you have. And then what is that really? It's two people who like a thing going and doing that thing. Like the, not much conflict, not much drama, not much. And also like when you're introducing a new world, like in any kind of storytelling, like you need to get details out to the audience and a a way to do that a lot of times is by having that kind of fish out of water character enter this new world and you're learning things as they learn it. So we're like, Oh, okay. Maybe there was, I think there was a story in the idea. I, I think maybe one of our bosses said like, we should do a story like Steve and Jeff are brothers. We've never really done anything about that. And there was just that kind of floating around like, Oh, what if we took that? Like, what if it's Jeff somehow gets Steve, into fish or brings him to this parking lot world. Like we were just like, we want to get to the parking lot world. That was the thing, the idea that you would like, you could sell veggie burritos and go from town to town if you sold enough and get into the show, but like watch out because the Nitrous Mafia is violent sometimes, like that kind of shit. So, so we, it's a story about like Steve and Jeff kind of, I think Steve, I, I, don't, I don't want to get too spoilery, but basically Steve wants to, become a a real brother to jeff they want to have that brother dynamic and through that jeff takes him to his first like fish parking lot experience and um and and steve kind of is enamored with it as 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 i was and kind of goes on tour with jeff and has adventures within that world
0: that's awesome that sounds awesome
1: yeah it was super fun and there was a lot of just like all right i mean i'd already kind of like as as a lot of fish fans who are writers do, snuck some things in, like I got I got some fish references in the community and this and that. And but this was just one of those ones, like I had things that I needed to get in this. And I wanted it to feel like I wanted it to feel like authentic. To to at least just like, oh, this guy is not just writing about it like, oh, he read an article about what fish shows are like and he put a bunch of tie-dye on people and they all like spun around and did drugs. It was like, I want to have these specifics that are just like, if you go on tour, if you've been to Dick's for the last eight years, like I have, like, you're just like, oh, I know that. That's right. Like, oh, that's funny because like, yes, the Nitrous Mafia should be the villains and they are like that kind of stuff. So I had a lot of details I wanted to get in just like plot wise and then also just a lot of just like oh well, if there's gonna be a bunch of bumper stickers on that van. Then here's twenty of them. I'll write them out for you, and they'll just be fun things people can find along the way. Hopefully, like I tried to put a lot of little, I wouldn't even say Easter eggs because I don't want to congratulate myself on hiding them so well. I just put a bunch of fun shit in there, and hopefully people will see it and like it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I'm, I mean, the idea of it, like, primarily being in the in the lot, is super appealing uh, to me because. I think it's like, it's relatable in the sense, like, like you said, like people, you know, might not be into the music, but if they go to the show and like they see the parking lot, like at least everybody that I've dragged along with me has been like blown away. Like, cause I used to work at SPAC in the parking lot. And for oh. show, so, yeah, so for shows like Fish and like Dead & Co and Dave Matthews and stuff like people show up like the people who have been traveling on tour, they show up at like five in the morning and expect you to let them into the, the parking lot. So we would ha- like assign a crew to show up at like 6 AM and open the gate, let all the vendors in, let them set up and then shut it. And,
1: that, and that's always been a thing, maybe you can answer questions for me now. My friends and I have always been like, man, like there's always this like well-defined area for, for Shakedown Street where all the vendors are. I'm like, that must just be a thing they work out with the venue, I guess. Like it just it's, it's, it's like in, in a chaotic atmosphere where everyone's just kind of literally rolling with it and improv, improvising where they're parked and how they do it. That's weirdly the most organized thing is that there's like this like defined downtown area of the parking lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At back. I mean, I don't know how it started because I I didn't start working there until 2016. But, um, yeah, they have like the first uh, well on the west side. Have you ever been spec?
1: I've been to SPAC, but not for a fish concert. I think I saw like a a, a classical show there at my hunt once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they have like the two parking lots. The one where, uh, where shakedown is, is across the street. And um, it's the first like four or five rows are all paved and then everything else is grass. So those all paved rows are where shakedown goes. So they, you know, um, so a couple of times I got assigned to like show up early and we'd let them in and they'd all set up there. And then all the other people would just come in with their cars, would park on the grass. It's always wild
1: to me that the venue even lets that happen. I mean, I guess that's part of like, if they didn't let that happen, they wouldn't get the show. Maybe that's something they work out with the band's management or something, but yeah. Like yeah.
0: I always, yeah. I always figured it was just like, uh, well, if people keep showing up every year, like we might as well let, let them in and make some money. Yeah. Yeah. But just
1: the organizing of it, like, it's just like, it's not like it's, three cars in a row that are selling like food and clothes and then like five cars that aren't, and then like someone selling pizza again, it's just like, no, this street, every single car is selling crystals or books or whatever. Um, Yeah. And then sometimes when you go to like the, the, the shakedown at Dick's was just massive. It was so big. It was
0: like five rows of, of cars. It was, it was a whole city. Yeah. It's awesome. That's, I mean, yeah, that's my favorite part. And I loved working the shows because since like people always come, the parking lot always gets filled up. So I'd always get off early, and then I'd just be able to walk around Shakedown for the show. Oh,
1: was that the idea? Like as soon as the parking lot was filled, your job was done for the day.
0: You would yeah, cars. Yeah, so that's why I loved the big shows because the parking lot would always fill, and then I could just leave
1: and do yeah, that's not not bad. Yeah, and then the same thing with with the festivals too. I had probably been to four or five of those, and, and and and. Dick's being a semi-festival in the way there was a campground thing, that was always amazing to me too, just like, oh, wow, this kind of like tent city goes up for three days. People are literally like filling swimming pools people have like massage chairs, like and people, this guy's got a movie theater and he made, like, I, I, love, I love that idea of just like, everyone shows up, the city shows, like, you know, it, it, I remember at the Clifford Ball, they're just like, there's like 90,000 of us here, we're officially the biggest city in Maine or whatever for these for this temporary amount of t- days. And then it all just goes away. It's it's amazing to me.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And it's always funny to, for me, when I tell people about like festivals like that, Clifford Ball or, you know, Grey Wands, like, oh, they get 70,000, 90,000 people to show up. and. And all, like people that I tell who've never heard of the band, they're like, they have that many fans.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's wild. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, especially during that time because they were, you know, growing at their regular growth rate, and people who really liked them, but then also kind of became like a flavor of the month, like pop pop culture wise, for a little bit. So, like in the mid to late '90s, like yeah, you could probably get a hundred thousand people for a festival. Um, now i don't know that you could but like i also don't need the forty thousand people that are there just to like get fucked up like i don't i it's nice to have everyone there like when you go to dicks like the only people who are there like love this shit so
0: yeah yeah exactly uh and it kind of uh speaking of like the reaction videos i was talking about there was one uh it was one of the new year's gags i think in like the last five six years Uh, so it was at the garden and like video starts and the guy pauses it like two seconds in. And he's like, I just want to say like, I had no idea they were big enough to play Madison Square Garden. I was like, dude, they've been playing they, it every year. Played like 13 out of 15 nights. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, new Year's Eve, by the way, is kind of like the one big tradition. I that's still on like my fish bucket list. Like I've been to Halloween shows. I've been to festivals. I've been to this and that, but I've not managed to make it to a new year's show. And uh, just the timing hasn't worked out. Or, or, or also, when I was younger, I was living in New York, like I said, for like four or five years. And like, I would do mail order and just never got the tickets. Like, I've walked around Madison Square Garden on the nights of shows looking for tickets more times than I can remember and just struck out every single time. I, I didn't have that network of like friends now. Like, now I know so many people who are fans that it's like, I feel like I can pretty much get into any show if I talk to enough people and someone knows a guy who knows a guy or whatever. Uh, or also there's like the StubHub route now, which wasn't really around then. But yeah, one of these days, I will get out to New Year's.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was funny because uh, New Year's 2019 was my first New Year's show. It was my first like non-regular show. It was only my fifth one. So I've only seen five shows total. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your first show? Uh, the First night of Albany, 2018. And then I saw both nights of SPAC, 2019, and then New Year's. So those are my five. Huh. Uh, awesome. but yeah like i entered the the ticket lottery and i won two tickets first try first time i ever entered it for new year's i heard if you only enter one night like you have a better chance of winning so i only put it in for new year's eve and i got two tickets and i was like whoa okay that's awesome yeah so it, yeah it worked out nice uh, yeah one, one of these days i want to get out to that yeah definitely hopefully this year crossing
1: fingers i just got you know i think last year that they they you know they sold the summer tour tickets before the world went to shit and they basically instead of canceling them they they like punted them a year into the future and i just got an email from the forum in la just being like you're going to fish we're printing your tickets in june i'm like i am not this is like some automated system that's happening Um, that they're like sending it out. And, yes, of course, a couple days later, it turned out it was just some automated thing, but for, for like a split second, I'm just like, are going to play an indoor show in LA during a pandemic? No.
0: <laughs> but hopefully, uh, you know, New Year's 2021 or 2022, it'd be nice to, to get yeah. back up. Yeah, that'd be nice. And it's funny you mentioned the forum shows because there's people on like the Fish Reddit page who've been posting that. They're like, oh, yeah, it's it, my it, tickets, like summer tour's happening. And they're like, that's not what it means, but okay. No, no. It means that like someone set a
1: set of date on some reminder function one year ago. And it just like,
0: you know, someone forgot to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I don't really have much more, honestly. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask, like, uh, we talked a lot about fish actually, uh, but um <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Like when you look back at like your career so far and everything you've done, like all the shows you've you've worked for. Are there any like favorite memories or moments that kind of stand out to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love Making the shows like it's awesome. Like I I love being on set and working out a scene with actors. I love being in editing rooms with, or, or talking to animators and American Dad. That kind of stuff is so fun. Like the actual making of the show. Like that's why I got into it in the first place. But when you weirdly think like the memories I was gonna say you have, but like I have at least. I can't speak for all writers. Are are oftentimes just the people you've worked with and how fun it was. You know, like there's inside jokes that run five years deep especially when you've been on a show like I've, I've been pretty lucky where you know i was on community for four years in a row in a business where sometimes you get a job every three months and i've been on american dad for five or six years so like you know these people and like we've american dad we've like been skiing together in utah we went to new orleans together and like saw jazz music like we we've gone places and done things together. And and, and, and maybe I'm just like get, getting to be like an old softy, but a lot of the memories I have are just like having fun or just like laughing your ass off in a joke room with friends, writing a thing that you know will never make it on air. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but as far as I'm trying to think of just like, I did an episode of Community that was Donald Glover's last episode and uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with community, but like uh, LeVar Burton was like his like favorite actor, and he had been in the previous episode. And we're like, okay, we should bring back LeVar Burton for for Donald's last episode, and you know Troy leaving Greenville or whatever, and and. Uh, he was on set and was just like hanging out, waiting to do his scene and was just so happy to be there and having so much fun. And I was just like, this is cool. This is a fun little Hollywood moment. It's not all about like, oh, I met George Clooney, but just like, this is like just watching this dude who you respect as an actor and as a human being, like having fun on the set of the show you're working on, working like, you know, laughing at your lines and working with you on stuff like that. That that, for some reason that sticks out to me, Lamar Burton just being a cool dude and, and getting to work with him.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and then, yeah, just kind of to wrap up, uh, is there any advice that you would give to somebody who's like trying to, you know, get into the industry and get into comedy? Yeah. Well, I will, first
1: of all, I will, I will pass on the, the, the Jonathan Groff advice that he gave me. Like that I do, like, you know, there are two paths. There's opportunity path and there's the like getting good at writing path or getting good at comedy path. And, you know, like, you kind of do need both because you can be the best person at writing comedy, but if you don't have an opportunity, then, like, you might not be able to showcase that. Or you might have all the opportunities in the world because, like, you're everybody's friend and you've, like, done production for all these other shows. But, like, if you aren't quite, if you're not, if your experience isn't ready for when your opportunity strikes, that doesn't work either. So, like, this idea of, like, all right, I, I tried it on two different paths and I thought it worked out well. Like, first of all, just, like, get any job in this industry. Like it's always easier to find the next job once you have this job because you kind of have a a home base to go from. Or like once you're on a show that gets canceled, everyone who works on that show scatters to the four corners of the globe. And now you know people on 20 shows. And like, so like that, that, you know, and, and if so, if you're working with people and you're, you know, doing production office jobs or PA jobs or assistant jobs, and you've kind of proven yourself as just like, a reliable worker who's fun to be around like that's a it's good way to meet people and get opportunities but then just like you got to get out there and do the thing that you want to do And in my case it was comedy so like get out there now it's the easiest time in the fucking world man like get your phone get your friends go out and make some videos like when i used to do short films it was just like how are we going to get a camera? Well, I know this guy who has a camera and it's just all a huge pain in the ass. Like, do we know somebody like, oh, my friend does like post-production on Saturday Night Live and we can use their editing machine on Sunday afternoons because no one's there. Well, now you do it on your fucking phone. Like, you have no excuse not to get out there and do things or like put up put up sketch shows, Do get into an improv theater, like find your community of people who like you'll get better, but you'll also find like, oh, I work really well with her. Like we should make a show together. Or like, you know, like, oh, wow, you know, holy shit, I just got this opportunity to make a thing and I can hire three writers. Well, I know these three because we've done so many UCB things together that I know we're creatively on the same page. So just like Getting out there doing it, having your crew of people that kind of you've worked with and you have the same sensibility as is just is key. Those are the, those are the two things I'll pass on.
0: That's awesome. Uh, thank you. And thanks for your time. This was uh, a lot of fun. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was great
1: to meet you, man. I'm, 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 uh, I, I'm glad to know there's at least one other person who will be as into the fish episode as I, as I am.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can't wait.
1: I'm pumped. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, uh, thanks. See you on the Twitter.
0: Huge thank you to Tim for taking the time to come on the show and talk. Had a lot of fun. It was a great time. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and don't forget to tune in next time for another brand new episode with an all-new guest. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.